Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen, and I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. You are listening to an entertainment program put together by a company called Financial Ineptitude. Anything said on this show is not an endorsement or professional advice. Would you really want to tell a court of law you were suing us because you thought taking financial advice from two idiots on a podcast put out by Financial Ineptitude was a good idea? Really? Clown hats on your face. All right. Hello, everybody. Welcome into the China Shop. I'm your host, Kyle. But today I am putting on my student hat with fellow podcaster Blaine McCauley of the Penny Laid Podcast as we kick off our newest miniseries, Optional Experience. Filling the role of headmaster is shop friend and favorite Eric Smolinski of ES Invests. If you are following along, please feel free to message any of us if you have any questions, comments, ideas. Our contact info will be in the episode description. We're also recording video for these. We'll be sure to include the links to that video if you want to be able to follow along with Eric's screen shares. All right, before I cede the floor over to Eric, let's check in with the rest of the group, see if you guys have any news to share. Blaine, how are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. I have um, made a couple of changes to my trading recently. If any of you guys have followed me for any amount of time, you know that I'm pretty pretty well known for showing a daily P&L. And mm-hmm. I just recently have stopped doing that to take some pressure off of myself. Um, for three years, people have been like, stop doing that. It will make <laughs> your trading better. And then finally, after three years, I'm like, you know what? I don't have to do this anymore. And it has been wildly helpful wow. for my trading. So that's the newest thing that's happening with my trading. And then also, <laughs> A couple of months ago, I launched a Substack, which is number one, free. So, you know, that's good to know. Second of all, only updated sporadically. And thirdly of all, (laughs) is just what I want to write. And sometimes that's news. Sometimes it's a little humorous market commentary. It's just my thoughts. Anyway, people like it. And if you would like to subscribe, you can go to the link in my Twitter bio. If you don't want to subscribe, no problem. (laughs) It's not for you then. (laughs) (laughs) Eric, what about you, man? What you got going on? Chilling, dude. Yeah, as always, people can find me on YouTube at ES Invests. I also moved over to Substack recently, which I, much like you, I really like the ability to kind of talk about different things and essentially it also serve as a blog. So I used to do a newsletter and it was just a standalone newsletter. When you shot the newsletter off, it lived in email only, which is super annoying. So yeah, I'm, it, I'm actually stoked to check your, uh, your Substack out as well. But yeah, that's pretty much what I have going on. Awesome. I'll make sure I have all those links in the episode description. But uh, Eric, you want to just uh, go ahead and take a moment to explain how this mini series is going to work? Yes, sir. I would love to do that. So I really enjoy teaching. I've essentially always done this my whole life with any skill sets that I've taken the time to learn. And I think part of it is because I've had a lot of people teach me along the way. And I just find that promulgation of information super cool. So I started trading back in 2007. I was wheeling and dealing by myself, figuring it out. I was still in high school at the time. And I started realizing that there was opportunity here because I grew up poor shit and I didn't have money. And this was a really low threshold way to start making money, right? Because unlike real estate, where you got to have something to start, trading is different. You really don't have to have anything. You just have to be good at saving to build your principal. So the goal that I have for this series is to really keep it practically focused. I want to talk mostly about trading. Today, admittedly, there is a little bit of theory 
but this is kind of set a general understanding about the option space. Make sure we understand just the very rudimentary common terminology that we need to be able to communicate. And then from there at the very end, we're gonna go through some homework that really gets us right down that practical application path right away. We're gonna be talking about trading the majority of the time. So this session, we're gonna do some level setting and we're gonna get practical literally halfway through this. And then the whole idea is for it to be as interactive as possible. So if we have trades that we recently made, I would love to spend time in the beginning of the sessions reviewing those, spend most of the time talking about trading, and then we can use the residual time to hit kind of the main bullet points I have. We purposely buffered in a couple flex sessions so that if we have a really interesting trade and that takes up most of a session, totally cool. We have plenty of time. Awesome. All right. Well, should we just jump in then? You don't scare me. So <laughs> I gave you guys a little bit of homework. It was kind of structured as optional homework, and it's just because we're going to talk about that stuff anyways. But I'm sharing my screen right now so that we can run through some super quick objectives, and then we're going to get right into the meat and potatoes. This is what I want to accomplish for us today. I want to walk through that baseline understanding of options. This is really just so that we can even communicate about these things. Options are somewhat complex products, but like any theoretical thing you've learned in your life, once we just accept the terms, accept how things work, then you can start to see how things work in practical application. It kind of reminds me of high school going through Pythagorean's theorem. Made no sense mm -hmm. at first. They're just things you had to know. And then I want to walk us through some of the staples that I think are going to kind of follow us through the session. So trading plans, trading logs. This is something I'm super passionate about. We're not going to go far into detail on them at all. I'm literally just going to talk about them so that we understand their utility. But the ultimate punchline is they are whatever works for you. I have mine in a Word doc, but the whole idea is to have a place where we track our thoughts and ideas, and then we can quantify how we're doing so that we can make adjustments. Because most traders fail to do that, and I have some studies I wanna walk through that really elucidate that point. And then the other thing throughout this entire thing, I wanna talk about facts and fallacies. Traders are literally the worst at just spewing something they've heard somewhere that may or may not be accurate. Like one of the things is most options expire worthless. You probably have heard that before and it's it's literally completely untrue. It's not accurate at all. But because somebody, yeah, because somebody <laughs> has said that, yeah, exactly. And that's, that's exactly how it works is because somebody said it, we heard it, sounds like a reputable source, we heard it a bunch and now we think that to be the case. So those are my objectives today, but I would love to touch base with you guys real quick if there's anything specific, given the general theme I have set for us today, if there's any specific objectives that you have, I want to make sure that we bake those in. So from either of you, at the end of the session, what do you want to walk away with? Go ahead, Blaine. Um, I would, I'm interested in the logs. I have a specific system that I follow. It's a journaling system. Um, and I have certain things that I track, but I'm interested, I'm interested in what your key indicators would be in your log love that we can definitely hit that i have a note right here for that so we'll we'll 100 touch on that i think uh yeah definitely some of that um like the different metrics and the, the how you quantify the data like how you actually analyze the data that you do collect is something i'm interested in having a good process for back testing ideas and strategies is another thing that i'd be interested in learning more about and then um I think the main thing for me would be learning how to manage and accept risk. Uh, there's a lot of fear that I have when it comes with selling options. And uh, like the, I think with knowledge will help me get over that. Yeah, I love that. Those are actually really, really cool topics. And I'm not saying that because you're supposed to say that in one of these sessions. Obviously, it's super informal. So I actually really do love those topics. So to get us started, I want to kind of level set a little bit. And then from there, we're going to go through a quick seven question quiz. It's really more of a conversation. I want to ask questions, see how you think about the questions, and then I want to talk about them briefly. And then we will jump into those specific topics that you guys outlined there, specifically getting into things like logs, backtesting, analyzing data sets, and then also how we can think about risk in options trading. So I love it. Cool. So. We did a little bit of reading. These are the two studies that I asked you guys to take a peek at. The one on the left-hand side is betting against the crowd, option trading and market risk premium. And then on the right-hand side, we have option trading and stock price informativeness. Open forum, I'm really curious, maybe in just a few sentences, what did either of you or both of you kind of pull away from these documents? Maybe one of you can pick one and the other one can pick another one, whatever 
suit your fancy. But the main thing that I'm trying to start impressing upon people, just so that you understand why I'm pulling these studies in, I've collected data over my entire time trading. I have a really heavy stats undergrad and grad-centered education background. But most importantly, the reason why I like sharing data like this is because it's not what Eric says. This is peer-reviewed information from a wide litany of sources because there are so many mistruths and misunderstandings. When it comes to trading, my goal is to get people comfortable with even reading an abstract from SSRN. And it's not just trading documents there. It's literally open research for people. So with that kind of preamble as to why I even care about these, why I think other people should care about these, I'd love to hear just a couple ideas from you guys on what you picked out of these two different reads. Well, the, the first thing that I'll talk about is that call order imbalance. I was kind of surprised to see that that was predictive in nature of um, the underlying movements over the course of a few weeks uh, to months uh, you know, down the line. What was more interesting to me, though, was that the opposite wasn't true of the, the put volume. Uh, just I'd probably have to go dig deeper into the paper to figure out why that's not the case, but uh, super uh, interesting to me. Yeah, and I think one of the things for people to understand why that matters when we're talking about call order imbalance is really we're just getting a sense of how many calls are traded against puts and then what ends up happening with the stock. The reason why that matters is because we start to get an understanding of how people express opinions via options. And I'm going to go into some tools towards the end of this video on how we can use those kinds of details to inform our own decision making. Because a lot of times people will say the trend is your friend. And I actually think to a large degree, if you're a technical trader, that absolutely to be the case. There's ways that we can use essentially the trend within options flow to make informed decisions about trading opportunities. So I'm glad that you picked that out. Is it my turn now? Yeah, if you wanted to. Be. Yeah, it's I totally mean, up to you. So on, on the right side of the screen, <laughs> there are some things highlighted. And I have I actually do not know about the options trading um, increasing the underlying stock price, but I have heard quite a bit about it. I cannot actually offer any information because I don't know about it, but would love to learn about it. Yeah, that's awesome. So essentially what the right study is talking about is kind of how we can assess stock information based on um, options data. This is kind of the options flow that you've probably heard over the last year because it's become like the biggest word. I find that so funny. Retail traders find a new word and they think it's this fucking revolutionary thing. But the whole <laughs> idea of options flow, it's been around forever. It's not new. It literally, it's been decades. Same thing with, you know, algorithmically trading. Retail traders are really latching onto that too. But anyways, I digress. <laughs> The point being is you can actually come up with some really interesting trade ideas based on options flow, and it can be really informative on where we think the market might be going. Primary example to kind of wet your palate out of the gate. If we see unusual options activity before an earnings release, right before, vast majority of the time, that tells us information has been leaked. That tells us that somebody that knows something is trying to make money off of the insider information that they have. And then people say, well, why do they do that with options? Why don't they do that with stock? Because people are greedy. They want more money. Options provide leverage. It's a great way for them to make some money via trading options on some insider information that they know. So there's a lot of these little tiny things that you can kind of come up with and scan for to develop different ideas. So how do they not get cut? Just a lot curiosity. of times they do. Okay, Literally good. a lot of times that's that's the comical part. It's yeah. like it's like if you were driving down the wrong side of the highway for X number of miles, like it's pretty obvious that that's happening. Somebody <laughs> sooner or later is going to call you into the cops and they're going to know what's going on. You're going to get pulled over. It's like the same thing. So I, I literally think people just get blindly possessed by greed, but it's pretty entertaining. Okay. Couple other things that I wanna show you guys real quick. Don't worry about the right-hand slide. I know as soon as I show that, everybody's just like, what is that? Don't sweat it. I'm gonna overview this other study, but this is a really good one for generally understanding how retail traders perform. That's really what I wanna highlight specifically in options. Retail traders are notorious for sensation seeking 
and also gambling propensities when it comes to options. There's a lot of different ways that we can slice that. And there's a lot of studies that back that up. The long story short here on this study that we'll link to for people that want to look at it. On the left-hand side, it's called Retail Trading and Options and the Rise of the Big Three Wholesalers. This talks about two things. The first thing is that option traders tend to underperform. Hmm. Right, we've heard that a million times. But again, unlike just promulgating something we've heard, this is actually putting true data behind it. So that's the first thing I want to highlight here. The second thing is that the system definitely has no problem pulling money out of options traders. What that means is options traders tend to get bad transactions. They pay too much, meaning they're not paying attention to fees. And we'll get into fees a little bit later in one of the other sessions, but I want to make sure people understand fees aren't relegated to the 50 cent per leg commission you see up front or the 65 cent, whatever it is for you. That commission is just one part of the friction. There's way more friction via payment for order flow. That's a big part on the back end. And that's not necessarily some great boogeyman that's out to get you. It's just a cost of doing business. And for people that complain that it's really expensive now, Think of what it was 40 years ago. Literally, you, to make some of these transactions, it can be 50, 100 bucks. So yes, there are still inefficiencies that get passed down to retail traders. The unfortunate part is because of places like Robinhood, they lure retail traders into thinking that their friction is near zero. No commissions. Yeah, okay. Well, they're getting their pound of flesh on the back end via payment for order flow and you getting crappy fills. So the whole point of summarizing all of that up is to understand, in general, retail options traders lose money. We know this, but this is putting data there. And the second thing is that there's a lot of friction for retail options traders that you might not see. That is important as we're building out successful trading systems. Cool. The last data point that I want to share with you guys is from SIBO. Um, this is just talking about what retail traders are really honing in on. And really, all I want you to take a look at is this dark blue, which is zero to one days to expiration. As you can see, as a percentage of total order volume, there is a giant spike in retail traders trading very short-term options. That can be good, bad, indifferent. But the reason why I wanna highlight this is because if we fall into this bucket that likes to trade short-term options, I was trading zero DTE, SPX, options today. I trade them myself. But you have to be informed on how you're structuring these strategies so that you can actually make money because of the two things I said before, because of the friction that you don't see but does exist, and because of the other propensities for retail traders. Okay, that's enough of the data. I'm happy to dive into any questions or anything that you want to highlight here before we jump into kind of the next section that I have in line for us. Um. I was going to ask more about the, I want that paper actually, uh, the one that you said, don't worry about <laughs> what's cool. going on there. <laughs> yeah. So essentially what we can do is there is a system that was integrated. I don't actually remember how long ago it was, but essentially for small traders, they started a um, single leg price improvement mechanism. That's what slim stands for. And really the primary people that are trading single leg is retail traders, typically small, small trades, right? So what they're doing is they're showing you in this, in this section, they're assessing the performance of what slim trades do compared to non-slim trades do. So you can get an idea of what professionals may or may not be trading and what retail traders may or may not be trading. To be super clear, oh. there still can be professionals that trade single leg options that absolutely can be the case but they limit the size to 10 lots less than 10 lots which the vast majority of retail fall into that less than 10 lot bucket the point being is this isn't discrete there is slight overlap for slim trades but in general you're going to get a pretty good depiction of what retail traders are doing so this just runs through what the frequency of the type of option that they're trading so for example retail traders 71 and a half percent of the time are looking at calls and you had better believe that they're fucking buying the calls because that's mm -hmm. what they're taught to do because that's how you make a bunch of money according to the gurus online. Fun fact, may may not believe this, but that's actually how you lose a bunch of money. Typically doesn't work out super great, but this goes into essentially a breakdown of how they think about those different kinds of positions. And it goes into whether they're selling or buying. So for example, you can see that in general, the critical mass of 
smaller traders are buying, whereas it's inversed for um, professionals, kind of the larger trades, not by a large margin, but even those small changes in the way that we're approaching thing kind of matters. And then this I find really cool is just seeing the time to expiration, which we kind of just covered in that other chart quite a bit, where we're buying things, whether it's in the money, at the money, um, all those kinds of stuff. So hmm. all in all, it just gives you an idea of how small traders are thinking about markets. And this study isn't into perpetuity. This is just from November 19 to June 2021, to be clear. All right. Cool. Is it quiz time? I believe it is time for us to start our quiz. So the quiz stuff here, I imagine should be pretty straightforward for you guys. At least I hope so. But it's literally no drama. So if there's anything in here that you're like, I have no idea what that is, that's totally cool. That's the whole point is because some of the questions that we're going to go through are very straightforward. Some of the questions are designed to spur a little bit of dialogue. So the very first one, when we're trading options in general, there's two sides to every trade. There's a buyer and a seller. Okay, we know that. For those that don't know, very frequently, the counter side to your trade as a retail trader is not always a options trader that's, you know, Kyle on the other side of Eric's trade. A lot of the time there's a market maker that's essentially making markets and they make money off the spreads and they just manage a book that's essentially very low friction. Okay, great. So when we're looking at the right in the obligation of a trade, what does that mean to you guys? And again, either one of you can kind of pipe what in. What does obligation mean? It's a great question. I'm just kidding. Oh, okay. I was going to say. <laughs> I good teacher. feel like the market maker has the obligation to buy what you're selling. So it would seem like they would have the obligation and then the, the trader would have the right because they get to make the decision. Yeah. Are you talking about the, for the actual contract itself? Like when the, when the contract goes to expiration, if it's in the money? It, so technically it doesn't have to be until expiration, right? So options right. But if it gets exercised, yeah. yeah. So then uh, the way I understand it is whoever sold the option is the one who has the obligation to fulfill the contract, the person who purchases it has the right. So if it expires worthless or if it's not in the money, then he can just say, nope, I don't want that. Spot Throw on. Away. That's exactly right. So anytime there's an option transaction, there's two people, there's a buyer and a seller. The buyer has the right. They're paying money upfront. Think of any time that you buy something, you typically have the right to access whatever you bought. That is the buyer the seller has an obligation to deliver something. And whether you saw, sold a, a put or a call will determine what we owe at what point in a transaction. And we can definitely go into that stuff maybe a little bit later if we need to. But essentially, if you buy a call, you have the right to take on shares at the strike price. If you buy a put, you have the right to sell shares at a strike price. That's why people who buy puts typically are doing it to hedge a portfolio to limit downside risk, but that's the only reason you can speculate in terms of direction. So then in both of those scenarios, the seller has the inverse. They have the obligation to deliver for the buyer. Cool. Great. We're off to a great start. When we're talking about, oh, go ahead. Sorry. No, no. Good. I was just feeling happy for us. Okay. Well, don't, don't feel happy because I'm, no. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start right. fucking you up in a minute, but it's okay. Um, so when we're talking about an option position, how can they be flattened? And I'm purposely using the term flattened. There's a lot of different ways we can essentially frame this. But what we're talking about is how do you close the position? So when we're kind of using different synonyms, I purposely use these different terms because they're used within the industry and it's good to be familiar with them. So when we're talking about closing a trade, we can say neutralized, flattened. That's all synonymous for the same thing. So when we are- just risk off? It could be risk off. Exactly. That's another, that's exactly another way you could phrase it. So when we're talking about option position, how can we flatten or close an option position? What are the three primary ways you could argue um, a couple more technically, but. Well, I mean, one, you can just sell it or buy it back. Yep. So you can inverse the first order, whatever you did. So if you bought to open, you're going to sell to close. If you sold to open, you're going to buy to close. That's perfect. That's the first one. What else we got? Uh, we guess exercising. Exercise, bingo. Now this doesn't actually close the trades on the books, but maybe um, like selling another leg to take the risk out of it. Like if I, nope. no, okay. 
Nope. Yeah, because you still had the trade on the book. Exactly. Hmm. Uh, margin call. <laughs> 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 That's kind of like the the forced version of your first right. one, which is the transaction. <laughs> I don't know. There was a. Th- What's the third one? So if we go into the zero DTE, the market closes and your option is out of the money. What's happened to that option? Oh, were they forced or were they exercise it for you? If it's out of the money, out of the money, then it just drops off and goes away. So it expires worthless. Bingo. That's exactly it. So, and the reason why I break those out into those three categories, so we can trade it, it can be exercised. I frame it can be exercised because it depends on if you bought or sold. And then the third one is we can take it into expiration. And then at expiration, other things can happen. It can either be exercised or if it's out of the money, it's going to expire worthless. But it's really important, I think, for people to understand that whenever you trade an option, that there, unless it's cash settled, it can be exercised early. And it doesn't have to be for a good reason. It literally could be somebody that just randomly decides, oh, I want to see what this button does. And then the broker has to tie them to somebody. So even if it doesn't make sense, it can still happen. So the second way that they can be flattened is if it's exercised, whether you choose to or somebody else chooses to, and you are just the unfortunate party that's paired with them, or we can go into expiration. Any questions on these two questions so far? I have a question. Talk to me. I thought flattening had was like market ordered you out of your position, just like got you out as soon as possible. And then limit orders were not flattening. Is that that may not be right at all. That's, that was my understanding too. That's no, I, me I, okay. yeah, exactly. So I, I think in terms of like the functional application of flatten, like if you look on Thinkorswim's platform, there's a button that says flatten now, which gets you out at this instant. So that's exactly correct. When I'm talking about the idea of flattening, closing, neutralizing, I'm talking about them in kind of a colloquial sense. It's kind of like the tissue versus Kleenex kind of thing. Not all tissues are Kleenex, but people refer to them as Kleenex. So it's kind of like sloppy slang. But exactly to your point, flattening is absolutely a specific market function and it's a specific order type. Completely agree with you. Okay. Great clarification. Longtime fans of the show should be familiar with the lender formerly known as Sue Pullen. And I'm pleased to announce that she's back, fresh off a rebrand and ready to help as Sue Mackey. Sue is a certified mortgage advisor at Fairway Independent Mortgage, an equal housing lender who focuses on finding the right product for you and your needs. She has over 20 years of experience helping thousands of homeowners. Whether it's purchasing, refinancing, or even a reverse mortgage, Sue will help. Sue's licensed in 36 states now, so reach out and let Sue Mackey it happen for you. The best way to reach her is just give her a call at 520-977-7904 or in an email, spullen at fairwaymc.com. Fairway Independent Mortgage has an MLS number of 2289. Sue Mackey has an MLS number of 206048. That email again, spullen at fairwaymc.com. And that phone number is 520-977-7904. Shoot Sue an email and let her know she needs to update that address. Well, I... Wasn't totally sure on that, but I was like, isn't flattening just Perfect. like rip cording out the yeah, train, that's what I was which I've had oh. to do? <laughs> Get me out. <laughs> yep, exactly right. What are the four reasons to trade options? Hmm. Is leverage one? Bingo. That's oh. the first one. You want it. That's number one. That's my only one. <laughs> I would say speculation. I I wouldn't count speculation personally. I would kind of bucket that okay. into leverage. So then hedge would be the opposite uh, side of that or the other one that I'm most familiar with. Yep, that's number two. Um, geez, there's two more reasons? Technically, you could even argue there's more. I'm just kind of picking four of the primary ones as far as I see it. And also, that actually brings up a great side note is I'm just a fucking random dude online, right? So I would not take anything I say as gospel. I highly (laughs) encourage you to go to the SIBO's website or the CME groups. They have great education platforms. But yeah, anyways, I I throw that joke out there. But the some of these things, like you can argue one way or the other, but I definitely would argue that there's two more reasons at least to trade options. All right, well, I'm drawing a blank. Okay, Blaine, anything else from you? I would wonder if it has something to do with time, like leveraging time 
somehow, but that might just be more into leverage, but it makes time kind of tradable as well. So I, you're going down the right path. So the third reason oh. I would argue is volatility. It's yeah. one of the few mediums that you can gain direct exposure to volatility to Blaine's point, volatility lives within time. So I actually would argue ipso facto, you're close enough, we'll give you the point. So volatility though is really important. And the reason why I bring this one up is exactly that. Most options traders, they don't even acknowledge that, uh, that volatility is a giant aspect to trading options. It's one of the premier reasons to trade options, but it's really slept on because that's where all the PhD nerd types come up with all their models and they trade volatility that way. And it doesn't seem super sexy. And realistically, a lot of times it's not, but it can be super, super effective. And it's one of the premier reasons to trade options because it's one of the only products that you can get as close to isolating volatility from the rest of the market. So that's the third reason. There's one more, which is income. This is, you know, again, you could argue that one way or the other, but the reason why I list it is because if you have like a pension fund, a lot of times they have large troves of stock positions and they'll sell calls against it. So you could argue that that's to hedge in that instance. And I would argue that that's still partially absolutely accurate because it decreases some of our downside risk. But for a lot of times, even if you are a retail trader and that's part of your monthly income, sometimes people think about using their assets like that to generate additional income. So it's a little different than the leverage aspect of things. So again, I could definitely see somebody argue that one one way or the other, and I wouldn't be super tied to it. But I do think it's an important differentiation because another common fallacy of options is that it's a zero-sum game. And I commonly argue against that because if somebody sold a covered call and that short call is above their stock basis, meaning they would make money if that covered call is exercised. On the option itself, you could argue that zero sum. Somebody wins, somebody loses, okay. However, for that person's position, they might be net positive. They might've won on that position. So then you kind of get into this gray area of the aspect of zero sum. So anyways, when we're selling calls or stuff like that, sometimes people just want to generate income off of their existing assets. Great, next one. How is an option valued? This one we're gonna spend a, a little bit longer on just a moment, because I wanna make sure that we understand at least the general concepts of this, but I'm gonna keep it very high level. I just want people to know that this specific question can go super deep, super fast. <laughs> this is where all those Greeks come into play, right? Sort of. Vega, I theta. Mean, realistically, that's not how an option is valued. Technically, the Greeks tell us how an option behaves given different market conditions. Okay, okay. So then how is it valued? Talk to me. I would guess that it have a component of time, it would have a component of volatility, and those would be the two main ones, I would think. Okay. That uh, because the more volatility, the more unknown, so the more valuable that option would be because there's more risk for the sell side. Okay. Whereas lower volatility, they'd be cheaper because there's less risk to them, or perceived risk at least. So far, I'm digging it. Okay. Um, is it risk? Like the more like out of the money options are valued differently than the at the money options because the risk is different. That's, yeah, I'm following you there. I would frame it slightly differently, but I think you're on the right path. So to give you guys the simple answer, like I promised, the way options are valued is via supply and demand. Yeah, that's like the ha 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 gotcha. Oh, but right. that is it. That literally is how they're valued is the market needs to agree on a price. Now, how do people determine what fair market value is? That's what you guys are getting into. What are the primary components of valuing an option? Now, the answer to that is we have whatever the security price is. For example, if you have a $500 stock or a $10 stock, the options are valued differently. Then we have the strike price, which is exactly what Blaine was just talking about. If we have strike price relative to the security price, that tells us moneyness, how far in, out of the money you are. And then, of course, with corresponding probabilities, you can come up with a value for those. Days to expiration, the duration, which is exactly what Kyle was talking about, the further out in time something is, 
the more value it's going to have, the longer that contract stands to potentially make money. Implied volatility, which is the other one Kyle was talking about, the more something is expected to move, the more value that's going to have to be assigned to it. There's two more key components to pricing an option. And while you guys are pondering that, I want to throw out another important note. On the stock market, options are not really valued with the Black-Scholes model. I want to be super clear on that. Hmm. It is a series of far more complex models that are used typically by market makers and institutions to derive a price. They use something called a volatility surface. And before everybody passes out out of boredom, it's just a way to visualize implied volatility. That's it. So the Black-Scholes model is a basis for us to start determining price, but the Black-Scholes model has a lot of assumptions that are actually not accurate. One of the assumptions of Black-Scholes model is that implied volatility is the same for all strikes. No, oh, yeah, We know not that true. not to be true. <laughs> yeah. It also assumes that we're trading European style options. We also know that not to be true. So the point being is it gives us a starting point. So anyways, getting us back to the primary inputs, there's six of them in total. You guys have named four. What are the last two? Row. Is what? What'd you say? Uh, I was going to say row, but I'm just throwing out Greeks nope. now at this point. That's a Greek. Dividends. <laughs> um, dividends. That's exactly one of them. Dividend yield. That's actually a really important input that a lot of people kind of don't pay attention to, but that absolutely impacts the price of an option. And then the last thing is the risk-free rate. What is the current risk-free rate? That's another common thing that people don't fully... Um, comprehend. But the reason why that's an important add-in is the risk-free rate is one of the baseline inputs to pricing an option. Because if I could get the risk-free rate, let's say that somehow is greater than an option. I don't know why I might trade that option. It becomes difficult for me to assess that. So the risk-free rate is in a really important input, really in most of these financial models, is going to become important. What is the risk-free rate? Is that just like the return on uh, like your savings uh vehicles or like what what else goes into that yeah it's a great question so the risk-free rate can be kind of decided for different time frames but when we're talking about options trading there are very specific time frames that we care about um, the risk-free rate and it's typically the short risk-free rate so something like a three-month t-bill is what a lot of people will use for the risk-free rate models and then people get even more sophisticated than that in creating their own but yeah that's essentially what we're what we're using typically. Okay. Explain like I'm five. What is volatility and why do we care? <laughs> well, volatility, I believe, is just the how much the stock is expected to move. Which volatility is that? Basically up or down. Uh, that would be the implied volatility. Historical Bingo. would be how much the stock has moved in the past. Bingo. Way to go, Kyle. That's Woo, all right, got one. Really well done. <laughs> and but that's that that's exactly it. Implied volatility is forward looking. Historic volatility is just looking at what has happened in the past. Why do we care? Why do we care about volatility so much, specifically in options? Which is funny because if you ask most retail traders, why do we care about volatility? They don't even fucking know. And I'm gonna be really curious what you guys think about it. <laughs> uh to be honest, I never really paid much attention to it either until I started Tell talking me. to you. But I am guessing it is just to allow you to get your expectations in line. Um, probably helps me with managing risk. And the, like I would stop the after the first one. Okay. You were right, somewhat right on the first one. And then we started going down the wrong path. Managing expectations. Sort so of. how much, yeah. how likely it is to hit your targets or how likely it is to, that, that's, I don't know. I'm just guessing yep. at this point. Blaine, you got anything better? Uh, I think it's theta. Because, well, I've always thought of it as like the options deteriorating the longer you're holding it. So the more volatile it is, the kind of less theta burn there is on an option. So the more profit you could get off of it. Not exactly. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I've so, always thought that. So yeah. tell which, me which why is that's perfect. wrong. That's, <laughs> that's the whole point of this session. Yeah. It sounded good. I was making notes. So... <laughs> So theta, it, you're absolutely right. Theta tells us how much an option decays. That's for sure. However, volatility, the reason why volatility is so important for options traders is because that is the one unknown in everybody's pricing model. We know oh, the security price. We know the strike price. We know the day's expiration. We know the risk-free rate. We know the dividend yield. We know all five of those. 
So when we're trying to price an option, the one we're all taking a fucking guess at is implied volatility. And this is actually why a lot of times when options traders are talking to other options traders, we don't even talk about the other details of the option. We just talk about volatility. That's really what you're trading in a nutshell at the very base of it. So whenever we're talking about options trading, volatility matters because it's the only unknown in that model. And that's what everybody is trying to guess as best as we possibly can. Okay, couple more. What are the four primary Greeks? You guys started rattling a bunch of them off already. So I think we're nearly there. <laughs> Theta, I believe I just covered. So Kyle, what do, you, what do you want so to do next? Let's, let's linger on Theta for just a second. Where is Theta the highest? Out of the money? at the money or in the money? The highest component of the... Where wait, is wait. theta the highest? So for, again, just a quick recap, theta tells us the rate of time decay in an option for the passage uh, technically of each day. So if we're looking at an options chain, where is theta the highest? At the money, out of the money, or in the money? Out of the money. That's your because guess? that's the only component then or that and IV would be the one or the two components that are giving it its value at that point right the okay. time to hit your target and the time are are the uh the chances of it actually making it there i'm pleased to let you know that you're completely wrong <laughs> blaine do we do you have a guess i was gonna guess in the money and for a very stupid reason which is just that it's it's like gotten to where it needs, I, I don't know. I don't know. It didn't don't, make any sense. So don't sweat it because you're also completely wrong. It's perfect. So <laughs> we money, will go huh? with the null hypothesis, which is at the money. The reason why it's highest at the money is because extrinsic value is the highest at the money. So it's the place oh. where there's the most money to possibly decay out. So I have thinkorswim pulled up here just for a real quick example. This fourth column in on the call side i know it's hard to see because i have a bunch of columns this is theta notice over here how we have theta and this is just one day to expiration theta super far in is it's so low it's literally giving it um like it's going from zero to negative 0 0.03 it's because this is all zero the thinkorswim mm -hmm. starts to mess up when it's too low then if we go to at the money notice how it goes from negative 12 negative 17 25 37 58 94 and 82. Those are the at the money thetas. And then notice as we go further out of the money, how that starts to go all the way back down to zero. The reason why that's mm. happening is because there is the most extrinsic value at the money, which leads to the second quality of theta, which is where is theta the greatest in terms of days to expiration? What do you mean by the greatest? You tell me. Zero DTEs. That's exactly right. So, and I understand your point, Kyle, which I'm gonna get into in just a second. But the reason why theta is so high for zero DTEs is all of that time decay has to come out. We are, we are right. at expiration. Now, to Kyle's point, in terms of a gross dollar number, the further out you go, the more theta there is in an option. However, notice how low this is. We just went out 435 days. We're looking at the at the money option. And theta here is negative 0.06. This is in SPY for anybody wondering. That's 0.06 for 435 days. Whereas if we come back in here to the one day, the at the money is negative 0.82. Massively higher. That's yeah. because all of the time value has to come out very soon. So that's theta. Well job, well, well, well done team, well job. I guess well job is works too. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> what's, what's our next Greek? And I know we're coming up on time, so I'm gonna run my face faster. All right, uh, Vega, volatility. Vega. Which we've talked about ad nauseum. That's perfect. So Vega is the rate of change of premium for a one point move in IV. Where is Vega the highest when we're looking at options? Probably around earnings. Um, not in terms of time frame, <laughs> but in terms of in the money, out of the money, at the money looks like at the money based on your screen bingo that's correct it's the same exact thing as everything else so you'll you'll notice a trend here what's our next greek so we've done theta and we've done vega uh delta delta and what is delta delta is how much the option is expected to move based on a one dollar change in the underlying bingo that's correct and where hmm. is delta the highest uh let me look at my uh the deeper in the money you go i think 
because at that point it should be more closely tied to the actual underlying itself. Spot on. That's exactly right. So the further in the money you go, the higher your delta is going to be. And then what's our last one? Uh, probably gamma. You got it. You are a Greek master <laughs> and gamma tells us what? That's the one I don't fully understand. Oh, perfect. So you just know the fucking so, yeah. name, but you don't know what I it know is. The name. I think that's just yes. disrespectful. So <laughs> gamma is the rate of change of delta. So it's actually funny because you start, as we, you may or may not know, there's kind of first order Greeks, second order Greeks, third order Greeks. And essentially yeah. the primary Greeks tell us how options move. Then the second, well, technically they're the third order Greeks. They tell us how the first order Greeks move. So it's kind of this weird relationship between um, how measuring how different things behave. And mm -hmm. where is gamma the highest? At the money. At the money. You got it. And then in terms of expiration <laughs> cycles, is it highest when you are far DTE or close DTE? Huh. Close. Bingo. You got it. That's exactly it. What wow. I hope you guys are picking up is the closer we get to expiration, the more shit's moving. There's a lot of stuff that has to happen. And if you also will remember way back at the beginning of this, that's what most people are trading. They're trading one of the most complex timeframes when shit's moving all over the place and they don't really know how it moves. And then we wonder why we struggle. Well, don't worry, because we will fix most of that ideally by the end of this. So this last question actually dovetails beautifully into the homework. So I'm just going to skip straight to that, which is what I want us to do for homework is to get an idea of how we think about one trading plans and logs and then the paper trades. So before we do that, I want to answer you guys' questions quickly. So for you, Blaine, we were asking about logs, what details are important. The way I think about logs is the more detail you can put in up front, the more you're going to learn. And it sounds kind of hokey, but here's what's going to happen. And it happened with me is I over tracked up front. I tracked everything. I tracked all of the Greeks. I tracked all of my notes on what I thought was going to happen. And what starts to occur is as you analyze the data set, you learn what matters and what doesn't matter. For example, zero DTE SPX options. It doesn't matter what IV or HV was yesterday. It doesn't matter. I used to track it, but I learned by tracking it that it doesn't matter. So the way that I would think about it is based on the individual strategy that you're trading, I would try to list out what you think matters for that strategy and then creating metrics around that. So, and that's kind of one of the points of the homework. So if you guys pick, in this case, what I was looking for you guys to do is to pick three different kinds of strategies that you wanted to trade. And that's kind of the second part here is to place three paper trades with the hypothesis and then your management plan. And the reason why I want you guys to pick three is so that you can trade things that are slightly different so that we can then learn a little bit more about this log idea and what's important for the log. But for your kind of general idea, um, Blaine, when we're looking at a log, the things that are going to carry over to almost everything is the day you entered, the days to expiration. I definitely think tracking the delta never hurts. That's never steered me wrong. Tracking the volatility implied and realized tends to be a good idea. But like I just gave you in that example, not always. And then also the premium that you received, what your max risk is when you intend to manage your loss. And then we can kind of build it out from there. But I think that heart and soul gets you moving down the right direction because what we should be able to do for all of those strategies is calculate our previous expectancy and then project our expectancy forward. And for those that are unfamiliar with what that means, we just want to see what our average win size is times the percent of wins of our total trades. And then you can either subtract or divide, it's up to you, but you can subtract your average loss against that's gonna be times your loss frequency, the average number of losses in your, or I'm sorry, the percentage of losses in your sample. And then that tells you if this thing is working or not. And then by doing that, we can then look through the data and optimize a little bit here and there, which we'll get quite a bit into. Okay. And then 
Kyle, I think that goes into a little bit actually how we analyze the data is we look at those different benchmarks and we start to see one, what matters, and then two, what happens when we start changing variables based on our hypothesis. So for example, if I wanna trade um, variance risk premiums in the S&P 500 via SPX options, I might start with seven days to expiration options, see how it goes. And then maybe I'll say, oh, I wanna test it with three day options, why not? Then I'll test it with zero day options. So by choosing something you want to test different variations of, you can then start to optimize off of that. And then you can do kind of back testing functions to aggregate a lot of that information really quickly so that you don't have to manually test all of it. But the way I think about back testing is that is like literally proof of concept. That is minimal viable product. If you can't get something to look good in a back test, good fucking luck making it look good in actual trading. So if it doesn't look good in a back test, throw it out or change it. But if you get a good back test, also remember your actual results are probably not gonna look like that. And then I think the last thing we wanted to talk about was risk mindset. And I don't wanna rush through that. So I would offer that we push that to the next session if that's cool with you. Works for me. Yeah, love that. All right, and we have anything else to cover them before I wrap this up? I know you gotta go here pretty no, quick. No, I'm okay. Um, but yeah, so for the homework, we're gonna look at the trading plans and logs. We don't have to review those on air if we don't want to. If you guys want me to take a look, I'm happy to. It's totally up to you. The way I try to think about this stuff, especially for the people that are listening along with us, I cannot highly encourage you to do the homework on these enough because the structure that we're providing for you guys to help you actually learn, it, I have had nothing but positive reinforcement from when I've done these kinds of sessions with people. And it's because a lot of people, they don't, really know what to do, but with a little bit of structure and direction, they can get off running in a great direction. So the homework again is to start outlining your trading plan and trading log, and then to place three paper trades, writing out whatever your hypothesis is, and then how you want to manage both profit and loss. And we're going to review those on the next session. All right. That sounds cool. great. Uh think that's going to do it for today i'd like to say thank you to everybody who stuck around to the end and especially want to say thank you blaine thank you eric uh for for joining me in the classroom eric for putting this material together this is already off to a great start amazing i learned so much oh that's awesome i know it's only day one <laughs> we are shooting for a two-week release cycle so keep a lookout for the next one and remember folks experience may be optional when following along with us but sharing this with your friends is not have a good one. See you guys. If you're a woman over 40 dealing with hot flashes, insomnia, brain fog, moodiness, or weight gain, you don't have to accept it as just another part of aging. The experts at Midi Health know all these symptoms can be connected to the hormonal changes of menopause. And Midi can help with safe, effective, FDA-approved solutions covered by insurance. 91% of Midi patients get relief from symptoms within just two months. Book your virtual visit today at joinmidi.com. Two Bulls in a China Shop is an entertainment program, and all thoughts and opinions expressed in the show belong to the hosts and not of any company. They are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual or on any specific security or investment product. It is only intended to provide entertainment about stocks and the financial industry of trading. If you make trades based on what you hear in this show, you assume all risks for those trades.